0: Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part four of True Age by Dr. Morgan Levine. This is the second half of the longevity diets where I discuss topics about fasting, fasting fasting-mimicking diet, the 5-2 diet, time-restricted eating, and also ketosis. While it's not hard to imagine that a diet rich in leafy greens will be beneficial for health and aging, the focus on a plant-based diet for promoting longevity actually emerged from research focused on calorie restriction. During the early 21st century, studies in yeast, worms, and rodents started to demonstrate that a reduction in specific nutrients rather than calorie intake as a whole was the main contributor to the lifespan and healthspan benefits seen in the animals undergoing calorie restriction. The macronutrient at heart that I'm talking about is protein. So protein has been a lot of in a lot of controversy lately, high protein versus low protein, which is best for us. And the data coming out of the labs looked at aging, however, were finding that high protein intake was associated with faster aging rates while low protein or protein restriction seemed to mimic the effects of calorie restriction. Studies started, in fact, to suggest that protein restriction alone fully accounted for the beneficial effects of calorie restriction. It was postulated that the reason for this came down to the effects of dietary protein and or calories on the effect of something called IGF-1. So IGF-1 is insulin-like growth factor. It is a hormone involved in growth during development and in anaerobic activities throughout life. It is a byproduct of growth hormone, which has been erroneously touted as an anti-aging compound. But the truth is, is that while growth hormone may facilitate some muscle building, growth hormone and IGF have been shown time and time again to also promote aging and specifically cancer. It was thus rationalized that reductions in IGF-1 in response to calorie restriction in rodents or other animals really explained the slowing of the aging process and reductions in tumor growth. Yet when scientists like Dr. Luigi Fontana from University of Sydney looked at IGF-1 levels of humans on calorie-restricted diet, he observed that they were not decreased unless the composition of the individual's diets was also low in dietary protein. This guy Dr. Luigi Fontana also showed that humans did not have have to restrict calories altogether in order to elicit reductions in IGF-1. All they needed was to switch to a plant-based diet that included little to no animal proteins. And this work was really followed up in 2014 when Dr. Morgan Levine teamed up with Dr. Walter Longo, another longevity researcher, and other colleagues to suggest that low protein intake, particularly low animal protein, was associated with reduction in age-related risks. In looking at a national representative sample of 3,000 middle-aged Americans, they grouped individuals into three different categories based on protein consumption. Those who reported consuming an average of 20% or more of their calories from protein were designated as a high protein group. And then there was another group who had a were somewhere in between 10 to 20% of their calories, were from protein. Those were the moderate protein intakers. And there was a group with less than 10% of the calories consumed from protein. So these were the three different groups. Greater than 20%, somewhere between 20% and 10%, and then somewhere less than 10%. These were the three different groups. When we compared the outcomes for these three groups over nearly 20 years uh, follow-up, they observed that those in the high protein group had a 74% increased risk of dying earlier than those compared in the low protein group. When it came to cancer and diabetes, those in the high protein group were far more likely to die of either of these conditions than individuals in the low protein group. Now, again, because this is an observational study in which people are really self-selecting to eat a certain way, it is possible that some other extraneous factors could differ between the groups and explain their findings. They looked at things like gender, race, and ethnicity, education, waist circumference, smoking habits, you know, other pre-existing conditions, attempts to lose weight, stuff like that. And none of these other factors really contributed. The only two things that seemed to come out of the data were, one, that the source of protein mattered, and two, that IGF was likely the culprit. They also found the data on IGF-1 levels measured in bloods in the participants, and they found that cancer risks associated with eating a high protein diet was compounded for people with high IGF-1 levels. This means that the biggest risk was for the high protein high IGF-1 levels, but protein was less detrimental for low IGF-1 levels. In other words, someone who ate high amounts of protein and also had IGF-1s also had the worst outcome, while people who had low IGF-1s, but also consumed a lot of protein didn't have that big of a risk. Now, I talk a lot more about growth hormone and IGF-1 in another topic from Near Barzilay. <clears throat> so I did a Near Barzilay book. It was called Age Later. You can check that podcast out. I did a whole episode on growth hormone and IGF-1 levels. But it seems like we really need to make the distinction between calorie restriction and protein restriction and also this fasting, which I'll get into in just a second. And IGF-1 is very important for the brain. It's very important for the muscle. We can build our muscle in IGF. We build our muscle through IGF by exercise and stuff. But really, when it comes to the diet aspect of of aging and longevity, it seems that having lowers of IGF one is actually beneficial for us in the long term. Because having high IGF one, high growth hormone, we're actually promoting cancer and other other diseases like diabetes and stuff like that. So again take a lot of this with a grain of salt and just kind of think about how IGF-1 levels are really relating to these diseases of aging now the next topic is about let them eat plants in general most researchers in the field of aging really would agree that a vegan diet is likely the best option for improving lifespan and health span but it's also critical to acknowledge that there are healthy vegan diets that there are healthy vegan diets, but there's also unhealthy vegan diets. So we all know that some foods can be vegan like, you know, Hershey's syrup or Twizzlers or some brownies, certain potato chips. These can be vegan, but just because they're vegan does not mean that they're healthy. She kind of talks about the protein and essential versus non-essential and this whole methionine restriction and how plant-based proteins have low amounts of methionine and Methionine and tryptophan have been often identified as potential pro-aging when uh, eaten in high amounts, and some studies have also hinted that benefits seen when animals are placed on either protein restriction or calorie restriction diets are due to reduced intake of, you know, methionine and tryptophan. So is it really the protein reduction or is it the reduction in methionine? So this is another thing that needs to be tweezed out, whether the aging and longevity benefits of protein restriction really come from just methionine restriction, and that if we eat high amounts of protein and get it from certain vegan sources like chickpeas, beans, legumes, stuff like that, this might actually be beneficial to us. Now, again, I'm playing devil's advocate a lot here because when we do eat animal proteins, we do get a lot of beneficial stuff. I talked about this before. We get things like choline, creatine, carnitine. We get good amounts of cholesterol, which is the basis of a lot of the hormones like testosterone, aldosterone, cortisol, stuff like that. And we're also missing out on a lot, a lot of, you know, B vitamins, B12, some, sometimes you know, stuff like iron. So again, there's a lot of devil's advocate and a lot of nuances in nutrition. This is why personally, and also some other researchers don't like talking about it just because it's so nuanced. And I feel like if we focused our attention on something else, it would be a lot beneficial it would be more beneficial like if we focused on exercise or sleep if more research went into that because there's studies showing benefits for all types of diets and you know depending on who you follow and the, the research that you read it's going to be different so at the end of the day you really have to find out what works best for you and kind of moving forward here just because I really don't want to get into the weeds of methionine restriction versus protein restriction and IGF. And Morgan Levine summarizes it perfectly well here. She says, truthfully, when it comes down to it, there isn't only one route to a longer health span and lifespan. There is a combination of different choices we can make, each contributing in different ways to our, over- our overall health and aging. So it's just a good broad way to put it. There's no one right way to focus on when it comes to aging and longevity. There's different routes we can take and diet is just one aspect of it she didn't she then talks about the blue zone so i did an entire series on dan Buettner's the blue zones which are the different parts of the world these five different blue zones around the world that have the highest density of centenarians these are places like icaria greece okinawa japan sardinia italy loma linda california and nicoya Pen- peninsula in costa rica While geographical evidence is not enough to infer causality, it has been shown that when people move away from these communities, they tend to also lose their longevity advantage, suggesting that it is not a difference in genetics, but instead likely has to do with the lifestyle practices in these amazing places. And the best example I can give here is the one I talked about in Jason Fung's Cancer Code. I discussed how the differences in breast cancer between a woman who lives in Japan Versus a woman who lives in the United States, it has marked differences. So a woman who lives in Japan, her cancer risk, her breast cancer risk is extremely low. And those who lives in the United States, breast cancer is pretty rampant. I mean, I think it's the second leading cause of cancer other than lung cancer in women. And what Jason Fung was saying is that Japanese women who move from Japan to the United States after I think five years, ended up having the same risk and prevalence of breast cancer compared to the women who have lived in the United States their whole lives. So it shows that it's something in the soil. It's something in the environment, something in the diet that is causing the cancer and some of these other deleterious effects when it comes to, you know, the whole like living in a certain location versus another location. And this is the point that Dan Buettner makes is that it's really the environment and genes they have something to do with it but it's more about the environment that the people live in so if you want to read more about the people in Okinawa or Ikaria I recommend listening to my podcast called The Blue Zones by Dr. Not Doctor by Dan Buettner Uh, but for now I just want to move forward and talk about the fasting for life section which is what the rest of this topic will be about. Scientists have speculated that while traditional calorie restriction might be the most optimal and straightforward diet for increasing lifespan and delaying disease, it perhaps is not the only option. Over the past few years, there has been a growing buzz about a dietary regimen that has threatened to replace calorie restriction as the preeminent longevity diet. This, of course, is the practice of fasting. Fasting has been around, you know, for, for years and years and years, Similar routines were utilized by people like Plato, Socrates, Hippocrates. Fasting has been around forever. It's a part of a lot of culturals, cultural and different spiritual traditions. And much of what we have learned about the potential benefits of fasting stems from decades of studies of calorie restriction. Not long ago, scientists looking over the calorie restriction literature made an interesting observation. For many animal studies, especially in rodents, calories were restricted by feeding animals only once a day. This then raised the question of whether the effects being seen were solely due to reduced food intake, or conversely, were a result of prolonged periods of fasting. To follow this up, a research group at the National Institute of Aging tested the next logical step. They put mice on an alternate day fasting regimen that was not characterized by an overall reduction in calories. Essentially, the mice ate the same amount as they normally would, but within a shorter time window. What they found was that these mice exhibited improvements in blood glucose levels and insulin sensitivity. They also, they also showed that the neuronal cells in the brains of fasted mice were better protected against damage when subjected to toxic stressors. Also, similar to the animals on calorie restriction, fasted mice showed reduction reduced risks for cardiovascular disease and stroke. So again, this is another thing we have to tease out. Are the, benefits of the, are the benefits that these mice are getting when they're under an experiment coming from calorie restriction or is it from the time restricted? So again, we have to really tease out the differences between the calorie restriction versus fasting or time restricted. In this past year, Dr. Morgan Levine teamed up with Dr. Walter Longo and Dr. Sebastian Brandhorst to test the impact of a fasting-mimicking diet on biological aging across two clinical trials. So what is the fasting-mimicking diet? So for those of you who are not familiar, the fasting-mimicking diet is this regimen developed and discovered by Dr. Walter Longo. He's a researcher out of USC. In the fasting-mimicking diet, each cycle consists of a five-day low-calorie diet in which participants consume about 4,500 calories over the entire five-day period. The cycle is meant to ease individuals into a restricted calorie regimen such that on day one, individuals will eat just about a thousand calories consisting of about 11% protein, 46% fat, and 43% carbohydrates. By day two and for the remaining days, however, this is reduced to about 700 calories per day with 9% calories from protein, 44% from fat, and 47% from carbohydrates. Using the measure that Dr. Morgan Levine had developed during that calorie trial, she showed that after just three cycles of FMD, subjects appeared approximately 2.5 years younger than before they were started in the intervention. That doesn't just suggest that FMD slowed aging, but it actually seemed to reverse aging. This was not the case for the controls who after just three months of their normal diet, showed expected increases in biological age by about half a year. What they found was that between baseline and following the third cycle of FMD, subjects reduced their 20-year risk of mortality by 30%, meaning that they were 30% less likely to die in the next two decades. Much of this is likely accounted for by the predicted reductions in risk for heart disease, cancer, cerebrovascular disease, and diabetes. This suggested that FMD doesn't just improve outcomes for specific conditions, but instead impacts diseases across the board due to its effect, its effect on biological aging as a whole. So we know FMD works, but it's, it's extremely hard. And even though it's just five days, it's hard to reduce your calories by a thousand, by having only 1,000 a, a day to 700 calories a day. And you know, some people say it's easier than fasting because you're actually getting some nutrients, but it, this is just a hard thing to maintain. The fortunate part about it is that you really only have to do it maybe once a month, maybe once every three months to see this benefit. There is also the alternate day fasting or ADF. This is like the feast famine thing I talk about. Perhaps like our ancestors experienced, alternate day fasting is characterized by days of food scarcity or complete fasting, followed by free feeding or eating until um, satiated. A year-long study of 100 obese volunteers compared ADF to the standard calorie restriction practice, which would be like 25% reduction in calories. They found that both groups, in contrast to controls who maintained their normal eating habits, experienced 5 to 6% weight loss. There was a clear difference in adherence, however. So just under 40% of participants assigned to the alternate day fasting group quit before the study concluded, compared to the 30%, were assigned the calorie restriction so what's the problem here it's the adherence people don't really like to do this feast famine but it kind of shows that it's it really works and the next thing of course is the 5-2 diet this is where the 5-2 diet is exactly what it sounds like each week you fast for two days and then eat normally for five days this diet was really put into spotlight by certain celebrities like Beyonce and Jimmy Fallon Jimmy Kimmel stuff like that but the problem is, again, not much clinical data on this 5-2, very hard to maintain. It really encourages this sort of binging practice on the days you do eat. So, again, I'm just throwing it out there. This is another type of diet that's really mainstream. And then there's the time-restricted eating diet, which I practice and most longevity people practice as well. Just like as the name implies, this, this fasting practice is defined by restricted time windows in which you are allowed to eat So, the most common one is usually like the 16 8 fast, where you'll do 16 hours of fasting, 8 hours of eating. And time restricted eating is more than a rapid weight loss fad. In a small pilot trial, researchers from the Salk Institute at UC San Diego showed that three month intervention in which subjects followed the time restricted eating protocol helped subjects shed abdominal fat as well as improve blood pressure, cholesterol levels, decrease blood sugar and increase insulin sensitivity. So it's a practice that I think everyone should be doing some sort of time restrict to eating. Now the very last thing is about ketosis. The ketogenic diet only has a few simple rules. Basically it's five to 10% of your calories will come from carbohydrates, while the majority, about 70% should come from fat and the remainder from protein. Studies from animals are showing that the keto diet may slow the rate of biological aging for instance, mice put on a diet out of about t- mice who are about twelve months of age, which would be about midlife for a mouse, exhibited significant increases in lifespan and had molecular signatures that mirrored those observed under calorie restriction. Now, given all the data to date about the ketogenic diet, it seems that the cycles of ketosis, as observed in intermittent fasting or short bouts of the keto keto diet may be an effective method for slowing biological aging and improving overall health. Again, the problem with ketogenic diets, it's hard to stay in ketosis. Your workouts tend to really suffer because you're so low on carbohydrates, you don't get a pump at all. So you don't have that full energy that you would have on higher carbohydrate diets. And the fa- the, the last also important thing is that when you have ketogenic diet you do tend to eat a lot of animal proteins and I just explained to you why eating high amounts of animal proteins can be detrimental from my IGF standpoint from a methionine standpoint and again people who are on a ketogenic diet do eat a lot of these proteins that are high in animal content now just just the last thing I want to finish off about this diet so when it comes down to diet I always use Peter Atiyah's model of dieting which is you, think, you want to think of the diet as having three different arms. You have a time-restricted arm, a calorie-restricted arm, and a diet-restricted arm. At all points in your life, you should be doing at least one of these, if not two of these. For example, if you don't want to restrict the amount of calories you eat, at least restrict the time in which you eat those calories and the diet, your specific diet. If you don't want to watch your diet, at least watch how much calories you're eating and when you're eating those foods and so forth. So you should be doing at least two of those. You can look up more about the CRTRDR model online, but I think it's just a beautiful but simplistic way to explain dieting to people. So I'm gonna end here. This is the end of the diet aspect. And in the next episode, I focus on exercise, how exercise and aging relate the benefits of exercise, and why everyone should be exercising. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you learned something. And I hope you tune in next week for another episode of True Age by Dr. Morgan Levine. Thank you for listening.